Experiencing some success or victory in your life? Pastor Ed Taylor says, give God the credit. David's success is that the Lord preserved him. And as God gives you the victory in your life, and as you continue to walk in victory, give him the credit. Take no credit for yourself. It all belongs to him. You experience a victory this morning. Why? Because God preserved you wherever you went. You experience just freedom in your mind. Hey, God preserved you. He is faithful. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And at the end of chapter 8, we see David overseeing a growing, thriving kingdom. This is amazing grace. We are truly thankful we have the opportunity to share the next half hour together with you here on Abounding Grace. Pastor Ed Taylor will open 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9 today. As you look at David's life, you can sure see how God protected and preserved him wherever he went. And you know, God wants to do the same for you. And today we'll draw your attention to God's hand behind the victories and successes of life. Chapter 8 where we find David in a good season of his life. He has a good, peaceful season in life, in his work life, his home life. You could even say his ministry life. God has just overwhelmingly encouraged him by telling him that he's going to build him an eternal house. He had this desire as he was hanging out with Nathan to build God a house. He looked at his own house and he said, how can I live in this? And the tabernacle is just in a tent. I want to do something. And he was hanging out with godly people, talking about godly things. And the response was a godly idea. And yet Nathan, as he encouraged him, I'll go ahead and do all that's in your heart. That actually wasn't the counsel of the Lord. The counsel of the Lord is, David, you you won't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do something far greater And in our last chapter, God reminds David of his faithfulness, of his love, his care for both David and the nation. He loved David, but he also loves Israel. He loves his people. But after a time of peace, which is normal for all of us, the warfare begins again. And it doesn't take long for him to be attacked here in chapter 8. After this, verse 1, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methig, Ammah, from the hand of the Philistines. Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, and he went to recover his territory. At the river Euphrates, David took, him, took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadizah, the king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. 
And David put in garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Betah and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took large amounts of bronze. He's collecting those things for the kingdom. The kingdom is growing. Battles are being won. And David is now establishing himself. Verse 9. When Toy, the king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had wars with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and articles of gold and articles of bronze. Verse 11 says, King David dedicated these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Sarai was the scribe. Benaniah was the son of Jehoadiah, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. That's chapter 8. A lot going on in the life of David. A lot going on in the kingdom as it grows. David is now responsible to the Lord and to the people to protect them and maintain their safety and to establish the kingdom in a peaceful existence. He's the king. He's the one appointed by God. As we've learned previously, finally, he is able now to fulfill the role of God upon his life. God made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David to give them the land. And now the covenant is beginning to be fulfilled and expanded from the great river of Egypt to the Euphrates. And we learn, as we read through, uh, as God is using David to fill his promises, to the west he defeats the Philistines, if you can think or you want to look later in a map. To the west he takes the Philistines. To the east he takes the Moabites. To the north the Arameans and the Syrians. And then to the south the Edomites. You notice something mentioned twice in this chapter that is of note before we move on. It's first in verse 6, and it's also in verse 14. And when God repeats himself, it's very important that we pay attention to what he repeats. Because in the responsibility, you know, David, you know, when you and I are given responsibility uh, as unto the Lord, it can be a very heavy weight upon our shoulders. We, we can take it as we should very seriously, and we can carry, like even Paul the Apostle, as he describes all of the things that he went through as a pastor and as a church planner, he went through all this trials and tribulation he went through, and at the end, remember, he says, and besides all these things, my care and concern for the church. It's a weighty thing to take on the responsibility to answer to God for the care of his people. But notice it's not a responsibility that David takes alone. What was the key to his victory? The same that's the key to your victory. The Bible says that the Lord preserved David wherever he went. The Lord was on his side. God protected him. It wasn't his military strength, although God used that. 
And it wasn't his leadership skills, although David was quite a leader. And it wasn't the faithfulness or the unfaithfulness of all of the pagans that were coming against God. The victory that came in David's life is the same way the victory comes in your life and mine, and that is God preserves us wherever we go. And he deserves the credit for preserving us in the situations of life. And I have to say, as I look back at my own life, he deserves a lot more credit than I often give him. I look at things and say, well, you know, I knew that, or I learned that in devotions, or, or I have, I, I, you know, I might say, well, God gave me some wisdom, but, but I don't give him full credit. I give him partial credit. Or I have to say, at times, I don't give him credit at all. I take it upon myself, and it was my hard work, or my dedication, or my devotions, and I find that it isn't that I'm giving God the credit for him preserving me. I have a lot of my and I in my vocabulary. God blessed him. God protected him. God prospered him. Let me show you what I mean. Turn over to Psalm 5, and let's look at Psalm number 5 together. Pick up with me in verse 11. We would do well to learn, as the author to 2 Samuel gives us, that God preserves you wherever you go. God preserves you. God goes before you. God is with you. Notice Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because, what does your Bible say? You defend them. Where does joy come from? The defense of the Lord. Now, we can, if we so choose, defend ourselves and take out a big campaign to clear our name and make things right and defend ourselves But as our pastor has often taught us, it is much wiser to let the Lord be your defender, to allow him to stand in the gap, to allow him, as the Bible teaches us, that really we only have one advocate between us and the Father, and that is the righteous Jesus Christ, to to allow him to defend us, that we're not trying to run around putting out all these fires and trying to correct this and fix this over here, but rather to spend our energy focused on walking in, re- in relationship with Jesus, growing in his love and grace, and then we can rejoice because you're the one that defends us, Lord. You're the one that defends. Let all, in verse 11 again, it says, let all those who love you, love your name, be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround them with a shield. David wrote this. Turn now to Psalm 144. We see some of the insights of why David would write such sweet things in the Psalms. He lived it out. This was his life. The Psalms often reflect what maybe we would read if we read your journals. You know your journals, those of you that journal. Some days there's really good things in there, and some days you're just like, whoa, did I just say I want their teeth to be broken? Did I really feel that this morning? I was just writing it out to the Lord. Lord, would you please break their teeth? And then by the time you get to lunch or something, you get out your journal, you go, no, Lord, no, 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 don't break their teeth. You're, You're good. You'll take care of it. Forgive me for wanting to take vengeance. Vengeance is yours. I mean, those of you that journal, I bet there's a few things like that in there. I know that there are times when I've been writing and I'm just like, Lord, and I'm just expressing my heart before him and, and I'll go back and read and I'm like, wow, I was in a bad space that day. I, was, I, I wasn't thinking right. Or, and then I read later where the Lord would apprehend my heart, just like David. It's exactly the Psalms. There were days when he would just cry out and, 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 and want something, some vengeance to be taken. And at the same time, he goes, no, Lord. Notice verse 1 of of Psalm 144. He says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war 
and my fingers for battle. My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. That's truly where we find our victory. Today we find it in Christ. Victory is found in the Lord. Let me read to you in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. It says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's chapter 8. There are wars to be fought and battles to be won. And David's success is that the Lord preserved him. He doesn't say it once in verse 6. He says it twice down again in verse 14. And as God gives you the victory in your life, and as you continue to walk in victory, give him the credit. Take no credit for yourself. It all belongs to him. You experience a victory this morning. Why? Because God preserved you wherever you went. You experience just freedom in your mind. Hey, God preserved you. He is faithful. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And at the end of chapter 8, we see David overseeing a growing, thriving kingdom. David has conquered the enemies immediately around him, setting things in order. Joab is established. Jehoshaphat is established. The priesthood is established. Then there's some unfinished business now in chapter 9, verse 1. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Now, so when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Isn't that what happens? When you give God the credit for what he's doing in your life, when you recognize how much he loves you, when you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God, when you're basking in that, when you're meditating on that, I mean, this is so beautiful. This is a beautiful season in David's life. It starts back in chapter seven where he wants to do something great for God and God honors that, he respects that, but he says, as much as you want to do something for me, David, I'm going to do that for you. Uh, As much as you want to give of yourself, I'm going to give to you. And then he opens up and has all these glorious victories, reminded of the faithfulness of God and how he was preserved. And now in chapter 9, what does he open? I want to show this kindness. I want to give it away. I can't keep it to myself. He begins to think perhaps on his friendship with Jonathan and the covenant that he made earlier. And as he does, he wants to show kindness. Is there anyone around that I can show kindness? When's the last time that came out of your mouth? Is there just anyone around the office today that I can, shine, I can show the kindness of God to? I mean, really, when's the last time you thought that? It's usually, is there anyone around the office that I can get as far away as possible from? You know, and you, maybe your job is to answer the phone. When I, when I was working for many years, my job was to answer the phone. I would answer hundreds of phone calls in a day, hundreds and hundreds. They, even on a computer, they would show us how many calls. And if we didn't meet our quota, you know, I think our quota was like 800 calls a day. And I can tell you, there was very few times I would say, I wonder who on these 800 phone calls today, I can show the kindness of God to. But when you're in a mode of experiencing the kindness of God, and enjoying the kindness of God and basking in the love of God, you start to think that way. Your environment changes. You see yourself as an ambassador for the Lord. You see yourself, man, I've, look, at what, look what I've experienced, Lord. 
God, you've been so good to me. Is there anyone that I can show kindness to? He's in a great place. You're in a great place. I'm in a great place when that's our mindset. That's our heart. Ziba said in verse 3, there is still the son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's in the house of Mature, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. The covenant that David remembers here, we studied when we were in 1 Samuel chapter 20. God has now cut off his enemies for a season here. And he's in such a place of strength that he starts to recall the agreements that he made and he wants to make them right. He wants to show kindness on behalf of his friendship and love for Jonathan. And they tell him, there's a man, he's lame in his feet. He's in the house of Mature, the son of Amiel. Now notice, according to verse four, it says Mature lives in Lodabar. That's a city on the other side of the Jordan River near the area of Gilead. This is where Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben settled, not in the promised land, but on the other side. They didn't come completely over. And I bring this out to you for you Bible students, in case you want to look ahead, that later on in our studies, as David shows kindness to Mephibosheth and Mature, later when Absalom rebels, David's son, and David flees, the same guy is going to help David when he's on the run. And that really should be the response. You know, we've been helped, we turn around and help. And that's going to be a beautiful picture as we put it together when we get there. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Mater, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, just in case any of you guys are looking for names for your kids, (laughs) just throw this out there as one of the possibilities. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David. He fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear. Now, why do you think David said to him, do not fear? Anybody? He's afraid. And he knows what happens in the world, in the way the world does things, that the family of the previous king is wiped out. And here is part of the family of the previous king standing before the new king. But David speaks those gentle words of, don't fear. And I'm sure there's a, just like when Joseph was before his brothers, as he's breaking down, I'm sure there's something in his face as well. It's not just the words. There's a gentleness and a kindness on this man of war. Uh, he is a man of war and a man with much responsibility. I don't think he's just saying, do not fear. I think there's a gentleness and a softness to him. I think there's a, a love emanating. He wants to show kindness. And do not fear because I will surely, this is verse 7, show you the kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And we'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you'll eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Back in 1 Samuel, we were introduced to Mephibosheth. And probably back then I said, we'll get into him, his story later. And now here we are. He was in his nurse's hands as as his nurse grabbed him to run for their lives and dropped him as she was running away. Most likely dropped him in a way, landing somewhere on his neck or his spine that brought a paralysis to his feet. He was paralyzed. Now he's grown up, and he becomes the object of David's love and David's blessing. When Mephibosheth is brought to David, like us, he is very, like we might be, he was very afraid. But David tells him, don't be afraid, I'm gonna be kind to you. Even as David was sharing earlier, that conversation with God as God was telling him the same exact thing. 
David, you want to do for me, but I'm going to be kind to you. And it doesn't take long, and I'm sure the wars took some time. There's some time that has passed. Don't quite know, but it could be long campaigns, a year or two perhaps. But he still has this glow about him. David has heard God, and show, God has shown his kindness. Now he turns around and is in warmth and encouragement, telling Mephibosheth, it's going to be okay, man. It's all right. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you the rest of your life. You have nothing to fear. You're, you're done. The, you're going to eat bread at my table forever, as long as you live continually. And his response is one of grace. David has expressed already receiving the grace of God graciously. Now Mephibosheth is doing the same thing. He, he's, this isn't some false sense of you know, low self-esteem or beating himself up. He's just like, why would you, what do I have to offer? Who am I? Compared to you and your kingdom, I, I can't walk. You know, Mephibosheth's name has, has the root of it, shame. In some translations, it speaks, his name means the, the removal of shame. In other dictionaries I found, his name means shameful breath, which is exactly what you think it means. He had bad breath. Or that's how he was known, as names often reflect the character of a person. The idea of shame probably refers to bad breath. It could refer to a breathing problem in his life. It could be asthma, perhaps. Or, you know, you, you just look at Mephibosheth and he has everything against him. He's hiding in a dry place, unable to breathe, unable to walk. He's lame. That's how he lived his life. A lame man, hiding, alone, fearful for his life, missing his family having to deal with the reality of a new king and not being able to enjoy the love of his dad or his grandfather. There he is. Now consider your own life today. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in a very suffocating situation spiritually and you can't breathe. You feel like you're in a dry place. You're not able to make any progress. You can't walk. You can't stand. Your heart might be broken. Feeling abandoned tired, on the end of a failure, and thus condemning yourself. Listen, stories, the pastors and the leaders here, all day, every day, the true stories of the crippling effects of sin are ever before us, the devastating effects of sin, the way the world will destroy someone, seeing young people just completely give up their walk with the Lord for something in the world, To have another divorce or an abandonment of a spouse or another backslidden kid or someone that's playing games with the Lord and taking advantage of the church. And on top of all that, there's the devil's relentless attacks, the attacks of the mind, the addictions, the bondages. You hear them too. Some of what I described is your life. You could be listening in on the radio right now and it's the crippling effects of sin, your sin, someone else's sin, the world's sin, the devil's attacks. I'm convinced that if we knew the secret stories of even our worst enemies, our hearts would break for them. Of the damage that they've done to their own lives and the countless sleepless nights and nightmares because they can't outrun their sin. They can't get out from under it. During the day, they have the face of happiness and during the night, it's misery because they refuse to be right with the Lord. You can only live that way for so long before you hide out in a dry place and 
you're disconnected from reality. Thanks for listening to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. Are you interested in a CD copy of this message? We can send that your way for $2 if you call toll-free 877-30-GRACE. Again, that's 877-304-7223. For instant access, look for the studies online at calvaryaurora.org. Wouldn't you like to experience revival and power in your life? Well, we picked out an excellent book this month that can help you get on that road. It's The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. This classic book has helped millions experience personal revival with Jesus Christ. When you give a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace, you're invited to request a copy of The Calvary Road. Give us a call at 877-30-GRACE or make a secure donation online at calvaryaurora.org. And those that prefer to write, here's our mailing address, Abounding Grace, Post Office Box 460598, Aurora, Colorado, 80046. Glad you've taken time out for our study in the Word. Join Pastor Ed Taylor all week long as we continue to learn how to live by God's abounding grace. This is amazing grace This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You laid down your life That I would be set free Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Chapel, Aurora.